Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Mary Morton. Welcome to another episode of Gathering Ground. It's no secret that the last couple of years threw workplaces across industries into an unexpected spin as we begin to find ways to take care of our teams while being sensitive to social reckonings and a global pandemic. Since 2020, organizational leaders have been working to develop equitable work from home policies and pivot to evolve technology and systems. We've learned the importance of a healthy work environment, which as you will hear about in today's episode, may be more valuable than certain tangible benefits for some. We started to understand how vital it is to listen to our teams and be responsive to their needs by focusing on an individual's humanity and not just their capacity to work. Despite these efforts, employers in every sector have felt the effect of what many are referring to as the great resignation. At Morton Group, we've seen the impact of this in the executive search area of our work. Candidates for positions from executive directors to development directors to program officers are asking about work from home policies, time off allowances for mental health, and the organization's responses to equity issues and the pandemic. If you've ever partnered with us, you know that we do all of our work through an asset-based and equity-based lens. So we are encouraging our client partners to flip the script and consider this an opportunity for the great retention. How can employers foster an organizational culture that encourages team members to stay and feel they can succeed? In today's episode of Gathering Ground, we will be talking to two leaders in the executive placement field to get their take on this trend in the job market and find out if they have had similar experiences to ours at Morton Group. Our guests today are Michelle Sattler and Lisa Brown-Alexander. Michelle is Managing Director and the Principal at Kittleman, a Chicago-based firm that supports nonprofits by helping them find visionary leaders who can impact the lives of those they serve. Lisa joins us from California and is the CEO of Nonprofit HR, a national company dedicated to strengthening nonprofits' talent and organizational culture so they can continue to advance their missions. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to have a conversation with Michelle and Lisa. Welcome to Gathering Ground. Thanks so much, Mary. Thanks for inviting us. Yes, thank you so much. So it's great to see you. And, um, you know, as we know from our, our individual work, there's a lot of movement, lots of different things happening, as I, I just uh, mentioned in, in the opening. And we want to dig down a little more deeply today. And, and, and let's see what we're all hearing about this, because we're all in different parts of the country and, of course, working uh, in Chicago as well. So what we'd like to start with is just a little bit about your background. How did you get to where you are right now? And so I'm going to start with you, Lisa. How did you get, because you've celebrated your 20th anniversary, how did you get to being the CEO at Nonprofit HR? With a lot of determination and a willingness to fail. Um, I started my career in HR in a specialist role uh, early in my career and eventually and over time migrated to a, a generalist role, which was a, a good shift for me. Uh, worked my way through a specialist to a manager, to a director, to a VP, and then eventually uh, to CEO of Nonprofit HR. So we're a talent management consulting firm based in the DC area that services social impact organizations across the country. Um, and it's been a wonderful ride. We are 22 years now, actually, Mary, uh, almost 22 and a half and counting. <laughs> uh, it's been a great run and um, we've, we've done a lot and grown a lot in that time. So Lisa, can you tell me a little bit about your 
time before you went into CEO? Just well, where were you born, for instance? That kind yeah. of yeah. So I was born in Montreal. I'm Canadian by birth, and uh, came to the United States to go to Howard University, the best. HBCU in the nation. Um, and so uh, went to Howard and um, uh, worked in uh, the nonprofit sector. That was really what informed my decision to start nonprofit HR. So I worked for a, an organization focused on city management. I worked for an organization focused in the arts and then another organization focused on long-term care. Very, very different missions, but what they shared in common was the fact that they each had members that were nonprofits who were, um, uh, unable to find nonprofit informed resources as it related to human resources. So I served in that capacity on behalf of those associations and said to myself, there's a need here that's going unmet 22 years later, nonprofit HR. There's one thing I know about folks who go to Howard, you always know when they've gone to Howard. <laughs> I love that about of Howard. Course. We have to, you know, be obnoxious. No, well, I just, I just think it's great. I mean, I, it's just, I just love it um, that I always know when there's a Howard, Howard graduate alumni in the room. Um, so thank you. Michelle, tell me uh, and all of our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got to Kittleman. Sure. Well, first, because I'm, I, I might forget to say it a little bit later, my father went to Howard. Oh, well, let's get that in now. <laughs> undergrad and for medical school. So, so Howard all the way. So my background, I'd like to describe it with kind of two parallel tracks. Um, the first 20 years of my career, I'm not, uh, I was not an HR specialist. The first 20 some years of my career, I worked in finance and investments. It was like director of investments for the state of Illinois and things like that, you know, so investments. At the same time, I had a parallel track of volunteerism. So I was, you know, I served on Coalition for the Homelessness Board, Protestants for the Common Good, several not-for-profit boards, and and I taught finance as well. So after twenty-some years in finance, I found that I was just working to vo- to finance my volunteer work. So after twenty-some years, literally, that was the case. So after twenty-some years, I um, took a moment to reflect and made a switch over to what I considered more programmatic or, or mission-focused work. Even though finance is mission-focused as well, I, start, I switched over to the more programmatic side. Worked at a few not-for-profit organizations, and that, kind, that, that track kind of culminated in me serving as the head of human services for um, the state of Illinois. So our secretary of the Department of Human Services, and at a certain point, chief of staff to our former governor, Pat Quinn. When that was all over, um, I had these wonderful relationships with 2,000 providers across the state and many across the nation. And I, um, I was invited to come to Kittleman, and it was a way for me to keep those relationships, not just keep them, but to grow them, and also to help place people, even some of the people that I worked with, in positions where they can continue, where they can advance the mission of, of so many really valuable, important um, endeavors across the country. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And and for both of you, your organization, some of the specific work that you do. So Michelle, yes, executive search, executive placement, but tell us a little bit more about what you do at Kittleman. Sure. And what Kittleman, I should say, you know, does, even if you're not specifically handling it. Sure. Kittleman and Associates, um, we are an executive search consulting firm. We work exclusively with not-for-profit organizations across lots of different um 
missions or across the sector from human service organizations, advocacy agencies, foundations, professional associations, health, conservation, etc. Um, we, we've been around a long time. Actually, Kittleman, just a kind of a note, was the first in the nation to focus exclusively on nonprofit search. That's just a little tidbit, 1963. Um, but at this point in our history, we focus on CEO search. 95% of our search activity is um, at the executive director, president, and CEO level. We feel that um, that all positions in the not-for-profit realm are important, all are super important. And, and yet, um, they're none more important, we feel, than, than the CEO level position to advance the, the mission of the organization. So we focus at the CEO level, we do about 90 to 100, 110 searches a year, and we have offices, four offices across the country, Chicago, Denver, Boston, and Philadelphia. And um, and we remain on call with our partners for about a year afterwards to make sure all is going well and to suggest any tweaks that might help them with their success. Wonderful. And Lisa, give us a little bit of an overview on what you're doing at Nonprofit HR. Sure. So Nonprofit HR is um, the oldest talent management consulting firm in the country that focuses exclusively on the social impact space. And for us, social impact organizations include associations, nonprofits or charitable organizations, social enterprises, and foundations. So we work with organizations to work through and develop their talent management strategy from planning through exit management and everything in between. Part of our practice includes executive search, but it goes beyond that. It also includes strategy and advisory consultation, diversity, equity, and inclusion, total rewards, outsourcing, and of course, our search practice. And of course, the reason why I thought it would be interesting to have this conversation is that we do a little bit of all that work uh, on, a, on a smaller level because we also work in the areas of organizational development. So it could be board development, resource development, strategic planning, um, executive search, executive transitions, um, and, and research. And of course, uh, the thread that runs through our work is the significant area that we've seen grow so much here at Morton Group is our racial equity access, diversity and inclusion work. You know, we, we put together an institute uh, and really, you know, organized our work in a particular way in that area in 2016 and things took off in a particular way. Uh, we've been doing the work all along, but we organized it differently. And then in, um, in May of 2020, as I'm sure many of us saw another wave of this work and um, just really hoping that people really understand that there's so much more work to do. We have just barely started to scratch the surface. And as you know, so many groups put out these incredible statements, but we have not seen some of that work come to fruition yet. Absolutely. And you know, the, that journey is at the beginning. We, we too started our DEI practice in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd and recognize that we're, we're trying to unpack 400 years of institutional racism and oppression and, and inequity, and it's going to take us a while. We've got to be patient but perseverant, right? And so we're we're continuing to move that ball forward, and we applaud every organization that's taking proactive and intentional steps to be more inclusive and more equitable. As we know, right, it's a journey. We're, we're going to be on this journey. It's, we're not going to arrive at a, at a destination. So let's talk about what we've been hearing about for well over a year. Uh, with regards to this great resignation. And we've also heard um, the term, certainly from HR Magazine around um, the tsunami turnover. 
in June of 21, Microsoft's Work Trend Index reported that 41% of people were likely to consider leaving their jobs within the next year. What have you seen in terms of the search work that you're doing, the executive search work that you're doing, or the work that you are doing in terms of helping people prepare for some organizational restructuring? Are you seeing these numbers uh, come to light as well? And I'll start with you, Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. We are seeing it um, in all areas of, of our, in all mission areas, as well as in all levels of the organizations where we work. Um, certainly at the CEO level, but we're seeing it below that as well. We are seeing people who held on during COVID, not wanting to abandon, if you will, their organizations. Those people have started to leave. When people started going back to their offices, there were those who resigned because they didn't want to go back or um, they wanted more flexible arrangements. Right. Seeing people leave because of exhaustion. And I would say one thing that's very interesting to me, I'm seeing people leave because of demographics. I am towards the end of the baby boomers, if you will, won't say how old I am, but people my age and older are either um, retiring or considering retiring. How much longer am I going to work? So one thing that has been very interesting to me, as the baby boomers are ex exiting the job market at all levels, there's a narrower band of people who are available to take their positions. So that is, to me, one of the reasons why the labor market has gotten really tighter, just as the sheer demographics, all of these things combined, the great resignation, the exhaustion, the isolation, and then there are fewer people to fill their, to take their place after they leave. And Lisa, what are you seeing? We're seeing movement as well across the spectrum from executive director to executive assistant. I think a lot of people are re-examining their relationship with work. Um, and looking at it through a different lens. When you, when you stare mortality in the face, it can change how you look at life and, and how you uh, balance life with work. And so we are seeing movement. We're particularly seeing movement um, with organizations that were less than healthy, to be quite honest with you. Those are the organizations that we're seeing hemorrhage talent. They didn't pay attention to talent issues before the pandemic, and the pandemic only uh, put a very bright light on what wasn't working. And, and many of those organizations haven't been able to hold it together through the pandemic. They're the ones that we're seeing experience an exodus of, of talent out of their organizations. So I think you raise a really good point, Lisa, with regard to organizations and, and, the, and their status prior to the pandemic. You know, when people keep saying, I just want to return to normal. And I'm like, yeah, normal wasn't really that great for a number of us. Certainly for a lot of black and brown folks, normal wasn't necessarily uh, great. And this point that if you had concerns and challenges that you had not addressed prior to the pandemic, they were exacerbated by the pandemic. And in some cases, and we talked a little bit about this when you came as a, a special guest to a workshop we were doing last year, if you were someone who managed with your head, right, that's you were just getting things done and moving through it the pandemic really called for you to manage also with your heart. Uh, so many people were really suffering. So many people did not do well working at home. I mean, there are just a variety of, of, of um, issues that people dealt with. And to your point, they should have been addressed anyway, but this really forced um, organizations to deal with it. And, and I think that's a good thing actually, because I think it then does lead you to the road around retention. Um, many people, again, have decided 
after losing loved ones and just seeing the sheer devastation of the pandemic that they're gonna do something different. And so that's why we've had this mass exodus. Of course, my question has been, what are people doing? I don't know if you have some insight into that because I'm wondering, so, okay, I appreciate that people really need to make more who are servers in the hospitality industry, for instance. And um, we know that uh, folks who are, for instance, childcare workers are not paid enough. Um, I mean, they're just a variety of, of industries and fields that we know people have been underpaid. And many of those folks left, but we also know folks that left from administrative positions, from CEO positions. And yet, I don't think we see the numbers of them going back into the workplace. What do you think is happening with those people? Gosh, you know, I wonder this. When I go to restaurants, and I'm grateful to be able to go to restaurants, when I go to hotels, when I go to any service industry, and they are so backed up because there, there are so few workers, right. I, I wonder this all the time. And I meet people in the lines waiting to be served, um, people who talk with me and say, they're underpaid. And, and I had one woman say, I left my job because they were underpaying me and I wasn't being treated right. And there she was standing in the line. So she, she had not gone back at all. So that's a, a very good question. I think that some people are um, focusing more time on their, on their families. And I want to come back to that, that issue of balance. But Lisa, what do you think? You know, the, the people who are choosing to leave are making kind of life-changing decisions. We know that January of 2022 represented the eight straight months of 4 million plus people leaving the workforce. Mm -hmm. So this is not a temporary phenomenon anymore. This is a long-term one. People are making different choices about how they spend time, who they spend it with. And we know that in American society, we spend a majority of our time working. And so if you want to retain your talent, you need to pay attention to culture. Culture is the bedrock, the foundation of employee retention. The two things cannot be disaggregated. They cannot be separated. The organizations that dial in and pay attention to the importance of talent are the ones who are going to win the war for talent. This is not a numbers game. This is not as much, despite, and I agree with you, Michelle, about low pay. Low pay is probably the fourth reason why people are choosing to leave, not the first. You can keep people if you're not necessarily paying at the top of the totem pole, if you've got a healthy culture, if you foster an environment of belonging and purpose, those are, are, are they have staying power. But if you've not dialed in that way, you're going to you're going to lose the war on talent, even if you have money. I'd like to share a story about myself as an example of what you're describing, Lisa. Um, and as Mary, as you talk about the great retention, I myself, after five years at Kittleman and after a year or more of the of isolation through the covid pandemic and we're doing everything on Zoom and not seeing anybody um, and then with civil unrest and racial injustice, all of this going on, I was starting to feel restless. And so I say this in, as a point of vulnerability, but I was starting to feel restless because, so I'm not the CEO, I have a president that I report to. He, because we do have a transparent relationship, he knew this, he knew that I was feeling um, restless, that I needed, I was working a lot, I was needing to get re-engaged civically, needing to put more time um, into my volunteer efforts, as well as into my family. And um, 
he said, if you want to do, if you want to grow and develop, if you want to get more engaged civically, if you want to get more engaged in helping young leaders, I want you to do it here. If you're going to, to volunteer more, I want you to do it here, not elsewhere. So he gave me some other incentives, you know, changed my title, gave me more autonomy. Um, but I think that that is kind of a, a, a case study or a, or a lesson for organizations. They need to be, be listening and provide workers with the incentives and the rewards that they are needing and wanting and looking for, including very much, Lisa, belong, a sense of belonging. I absolutely agree with that. That sense of belonging is critical. And when we talk about inclusion, that of course is a, a major part of that. And, and this piece around culture, that is absolutely more important to most people than money, which I think people are surprised by. They assume that people are leading with the, the financial reasons for being in a particular role. What do you see coming up as a sort of negotiating factors? And what I, what I mean by this is, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I, I would assume you have. We've you know, gotten down to two or three finalists and we're moving forward to the final round and someone moves out of the finalist role, right? They've taken another role. We always check in you know, to find out if someone is in another search. And it doesn't mean that we're going to suggest that our client partner jumps through any particular hoops to advance their search because we think you have to do your due diligence. However, we wanna know as much as we can. And if we need to remind our client partner to move a little bit more quickly, because sometimes these things can be just drawn out as we know, and people are sort of, you know, trying to make a decision, but we invariably often get to that stage and someone moves out of that finalist stage because they've taken another role. And there's really nothing as I, you know, we talk to client partners that we can do about that. And I believe that that was not their person. You know, that's what I say. Now that may sound a little philosophical to the search committee, what I'm, but it's, I, I think it's really true that they were either gonna stay in this search because they wanted this particular role or they were looking for any ED or CE role. And that's the majority of our searches too, our, our CEOs and um, presidents and EDs. And as you know, people will say, well, I'm looking in a variety of places and it's not just, I, I could do this role or I could do that role. I mean, they absolutely could do that. However, we are trying to focus on people that think this particular mission really speaks to them and so what have you done or have you seen those sorts of uh, situations as well? I'm curious if you're having those similar experiences in terms of how people are moving through their uh, final stages of an executive search and you've got the person and then they, they move on to something else. Uh, Lisa? Yeah, we're definitely seeing that. People have choices, whether Amazing. you're the executive assistant or the executive director, you have choices. And as employers, and, and uh, for those of us working with client organizations that are employers, we have to recognize that, which means we have a, a, an obligation and a responsibility to sell our organizations or sell our client organizations in such a way that it will compel someone to stick with the process, right? And this is where I think a lot of nonprofit and social impact organizations have an opportunity that they're not fully leveraging. We're doing amazing work, or they are doing amazing work in, in communities. And that story needs to be woven through every element of the search process, such that by the time they get to the end, it's not about, will this you know, retirement plan be better than this? Or will I make $20,000 more here? But this mission is so compelling, and I see myself in it. 
such that it's it's not a choice, right? And that's the, the role that we have as executive search uh, professionals to, to, to tell that story on behalf of the client and for the client to tell their story as well. So I think that's absolutely true. And I think that is part of the missing link, if you will, um, because as you certainly know, for so long, it's been this power imbalance around, we're looking at you, we're interviewing you, um, and, and to your point, people have choices now. And, and you need to, again, sell your organization, sell yourself. I was talking to a, a friend actually, who was in a search actually in California, and uh, she's been in the search for months. It's a very long university process. And, and she said, I've been, I, they flew me out you know, from uh, the East Coast and it wasn't at all engaging. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't as though they were really trying to put their best efforts for, you know, forward. And why would you fly someone across country and not do that? Why would you have someone in a process for months and months and not do that as well? And, and what we certainly um, take as a sign, uh, even when we're in negotiations with a client partner is how we're doing the negotiations, because that tells us to some degree how we're, you're gonna be working with your, your finalist. Right, it's all very indicative of, of how you build relationships and how you work with others. Michelle, what have you seen in terms of um, your searches as you get through that that finalist stage? Yeah, we are. Uh, we have seen several where people are getting to the finalist stage, and then um, I'm, it's not that they've been called somewhere else. But if the organization makes a critical misstep in the last stage, we've seen mm -hmm. um, finalists finalist candidates decide that they weren't going to go back. So for instance, board members need to really understand that they are part of this sales group, if you will. They need to sell the mission. Not only that, they need to sell who they are as individuals because the organizational leaders are going to work with the board. And if the board is um, going to, if the board asks inappropriate questions or, uh, or even questions that show that they're not necessarily going to be strong partners, strong supportive partners, candidates are going to say, I'm going to go somewhere where I'm celebrated, not tolerated, right? And so board members need to, um, need to really get on board and understand that if you want the strongest candidate, you've got to embrace them, welcome them, and, and sell, sell the fact that you're going to be a great partner. Uh, people no longer feel that they're going to have, that they have to tolerate um, mm -hmm. things, negative, negative work environments that perhaps we used to feel that we had to tolerate. People no longer feel that they have to work themselves to exhaustion to find or feel that they have purpose and meaning in their lives. So yes, we are, we are seeing people um, kind of bow out, bow out when there are missteps at the end. On the other side, this weekend, um, I had a candidate, a, what, a superstar candidate, right? One of these superstars who would be welcomed anywhere and he had three options he was looking at, and, and, but this one organization has done a very good job of letting him know that they want him. This candidate said about the other two options, well, one I've dismissed already. The other, you know, maybe they might come back and do cartwheels for me, but we'll have to see. And I said to him, this organization, this healthcare organization, I think they're gonna do cartwheels for you. And they did in terms of, um, in terms of, 
taking him to dinner with a board member in terms of taking him to a show to show him how wonderful Chicago is and cross your fingers. I think he's coming. <laughs> yeah. So that matters. I absolutely agree that that, you know, that going that extra mile will, will absolutely matter. And, you know, we've all had those situations, I think, where board members have just said things that, you know, I wouldn't have taken the job, <laughs> you know, and sometimes they, even though you, you prep them, you give them the information, you know, an example being that we were in a, a meeting with a candidate who was uh, from outside the U.S. It clearly stated his immigration status, but someone asked about it, which as we know is legal <laughs> in a meeting. And I'm telling you, it's one of those moments where you just wish they actually could not see my face on camera <laughs> because I thought, no, really? You're not asking that question. And uh, it was a doctor who, of course, was... <laughs> just didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is going to be a big no. Uh, so, um, so yes, the board, and I think that's something that you know we just can't overemphasize enough that board members, because they are the you know they're going to hire and fire the CEO or president, and so um, they're part of the search committee, and it's going to be really critical that um, yes, they're they're putting their best uh, efforts forward, um, and so we've had those examples. So here's here's another question for you: when you think about pay equity. Uh, because as we've, we've noted, pay is not uh, often the driving factor, but it does matter. Have you seen more organizations really addressing what I would say, not only pay equity, but pay transparency, starting with posting the salary? I mean, that is certainly something that we've done. Well, I, I would say at Morton Group for years, we stopped asking people what their salary history was because we knew that women and people of color are traditionally underpaid and we don't want to perpetuate that. However, um, as you may know, in Illinois now, um, you you can't ask history, um, and and so occasionally uh, we still have to talk to a group about posting the salary. You know, and and you know, I think for many years it was like, well, if it's CEO president for a nonprofit, you can go and look it up, right, and have some sense of what it is. Um, however, um, that's not sometimes accurate because it's at least a year old on the nine ninety. And so now this idea, and I think a lot of this started as, as a lot of racial equity work started uh, in the Pacific Northwest and then moved its way um, in our direction. What are you saying about people having any concerns about uh, the transparency around salary? Because we started having that conversation early. You know, again, those days of we're going to get to the very end and then we're going to talk about salary. No, you know, we're, we're not doing that because that can't be the surprise at the end. What are you yeah. all saying? We're seeing the resistance at the board level to be transparent about salaries, much less so with on the organization side, right? The staff, the stakeholders internally. Um, the, the push for pay transparency is, for the most part, coming from within organizations, from staff. And so if you're going to be transparent at the staff level, you also have to be transparent at the leadership level. The boards, I think, are the ones who are kind of holding back and like, oh, do we have to share that? Do they need to know? Um, and it, it is important. And it's important that, that boards understand the impact of not being transparent on their brand, which is, is something that can absolutely make or break the, the, um, the impact and efficacy of a search, right? So if your organization has a reputation of underpaying and you won't disclose or you don't choose to disclose the salary range, that will only reinforce the messaging that's kind of the word on the street. So my advice to, to board members is that they, they get over it, they get past it, and they recognize that times have changed. Um, and it also helps to support 
efforts around equity, right? If, if you've got a diverse slate of candidates and you know traditionally and historically the men in the, the candidate pool have earned more, yet the job is valued at X, you know, are you going to kind of dumb it down if you choose a candidate of color or a woman because they didn't ask for more, but the man you were willing to pay, oh, and, and specifically the whiter man you're, you're, you're willing to pay more to. So those are things that we have to grapple with as organizations and as executives and uh, leaders in this space guiding our client organization. Michelle, go ahead. Just and to add what Lisa said, I find it especially relevant when there's an internal candidate because we recommend, we talk about how transparency and equity would dictate that we post the salary range. And we have heard things as a starting conversation, they do come around um, as a starting, uh, well, we don't really, we're not comfortable posting the salary range because our internal candidate isn't making nearly that much, you know, or you've, I imagine you've heard this, if we hire the internal, we don't imagine paying that much. Oh, right. and oh yes, I have heard that. Yes, so we as the search consultants need to say, really? Why wouldn't you pay your internal what the, the, what the job is supposed to, supposed to pay? So we have to get into that conversation. And then what they're uncomfortable with is that once it's posted, people internally know, hey, where's my salary? So it, I'm heartened by the fact that it generates an internal conversation about equity that kind of reverberates through the ranks and, and stimulate some, some adjustments. I would also add um, with regard to your comments, Lisa, this idea around the staff often being in a different sort of understanding, having a different understanding about pay equity. That is exactly what we see when we're doing equity work across the board, that the board is in one place and the staff's in another because the staff is on the ground doing the work in a very different way. And so absolutely, um, that's what we see in terms of, yes, staff get it, staff understand it, and are going to push it forward, push this idea forward. What we've noticed is that I would say in the last several years, and this is since the pandemic, we had one search that they went back and forth, weren't sure they wanted to put it uh, out. They didn't, and they got a lot of pushback. So within a month, it you know the position had it there. And 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 of course we were advising them to put it on, but sometimes people have to go through that themselves to see it. And there's only so much we can say. But it, it absolutely makes sense in this day and age that people have, a, they can really determine, is this going to make sense for me in my life in terms of what my, my financial requirements are? And just to be open about it, this is what it is. And if you can do that, great. You know, you should come in and, and, and uh, put in your application. So it is really um, about where the boards are, because as you also know, organizations um, now are are much more uh, conscious and conscientious about diversifying their leadership teams. And in some cases, we may be helping them place their first ever person of color in a leadership role. And so because of the work we do um, around racial equity, access, diversity, and inclusion, we are also trying to get a sense of, are you ready for that? Um, we don't wanna set anyone up, if you will. We want them to come into an organization that it doesn't mean they're perfect and they got it because no one does, but they're doing the hard work. They're asking the hard questions. They're not afraid of that work, if you will. Um, and, there's, and that work is moving forward. And that that person who may be their first person of color in a leadership role 
is going to have the support they need. I don't know if either of you are familiar with the Race to Lead report, uh, building uh, movement project for the last several years. They have really done an extraordinary uh, deep dive looking at nonprofit folks and looking at what BIPOC folks need really uh, to advance. And uh, there's a myth I think that exists that people of color are not interested in advancing or they don't, they're not talented enough. They don't have the background. That is not the case. That is really not the case. They're not getting the opportunities and the access. And what we often see is something that I know foundations are wrestling with a lot. And as somebody who you know, has run a foundation, been president of a board for a foundation, it's ongoing work to make sure that we are not saying to nonprofits, oh, you have a new leader? Well, we're gonna wait until we fund you for the next year. We're gonna see what that new leader does when actually that is the time when they need the money the most during this trans, you know, transition period. And so what, if anything, do you provide in terms of support for new candidates, uh, particularly um, you know, candidates who become the chosen uh, one, if you will, in terms of their support, particularly when they're coming into an organization as a leader of color for the first time? Yeah. At Nonprofit HR, we provide our candidates, our placed candidates with uh, chosen executives with a year of support. And so they get that support from our team. They get it from a dedicated coach, someone they can go to outside of the organization's infrastructure to kind of vent with, uh, thought partner with. And that has proven to be a very successful effort. It helps kind of mitigate any uh, kind of early departures, premature turnover, um, and gives the executive a place to go to outside of the organization's infrastructure where they can kind of sound off when needed, right? Because when you're navigating a new organization, there's so many things, so many personalities, so much politics to navigate through and doing so in a safe space is important. So that's a key part of what we offer. And we found that it's been um, incredibly helpful. I love that in your year of support, you include coaching and, and maybe we'll talk about coaching later. I think that that's terrific. I think it's really important for new leaders. Well, no, I think all CEOs benefit from coaching. They all get it. But especially, especially when someone is a new CEO and especially if someone is the first person of color at the first leader, the first CEO of color in that organization, we also provide a year of support during that year of support, we do a leadership transition assessment, which is not a performance evaluation. It's like a check-in. Um, so yes, we're in touch by phone, but we do a check-in kind of surveying the board, the staff and the CEO to get a sense of, is everyone getting the communication they need? Is everyone on the same page? Is the CEO getting um, the direction and the support that he or she need or they need? And etc. Make sure everyone's on the same page. And by doing this assessment, we can offer suggestions as to how to adjust their working style, how to adjust the board's working style with the CEO. Um, just make some adjustments to assure that that CEO will succeed. We do put in the letter, I feel very strongly that we put in the offer letter that the organization will pay for coaching. Um, for that CEO. We don't ourselves provide it, but we do make sure it's in the letter. As we do. Um, we think that's really important. And, and, and really, you can use a coach wherever you are in your career. 
uh, you know, to your point, it's not about necessarily just being new, um, but in particular, right, in those first three to five years, it's really helpful. And, and I have one question for you, Lisa, and then we're going to take a break. Will you provide the support to candidates you have not placed? We take on coaching uh, candidates that are not necessarily search candidates. So we do have a team of coaches in our team, uh, on our team that, that candidates and non-candidates can work with, absolutely. Well, see, we just got a great referral. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Absolutely. All right, that is good. That's a good place to take a short break. You're listening to Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, and we're back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. So welcome back, everyone. Uh, on this episode of Gathering Ground, we're talking about the great resignation, but we're also talking about the great retention. And we want to uh, continue with our conversation with Michelle Sadler and Lisa Brown Alexander. And Lisa, I know from previous work with you that you do some extraordinary data collection. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to, Mary. Nonprofit HR has had a long tradition of collecting talent management related data for the nonprofit sector, something that is grossly lacking. And we recognized that more than 10 years ago. And so we produce um, several kind of signature surveys that happen either annually or biannually including our talent management priority survey, where we uh, survey nonprofit organizations on what they're prioritizing from a talent perspective. We conduct a DEI benchmark survey, which helps organizations understand where they are vis-a-vis other nonprofit organizations on their DEI journey. And then we also produce a talent retention survey, helping organizations understand what their retention practices look like Um, in relation to other organizations. Those are our three signature surveys. We're in the middle of collecting data on the DEI survey, which will be interesting because a lot has changed in the last year. And we know that some organizations have made progress, others not so much, and the survey will help to validate that. So each of those surveys typically draw between 350 to 500 organizations from across all types of missions. And it's a really good source um, for organizations to understand where they sit in relation to others. The best way to get access to that information is to go to your website, sign up, so you'll get regular mailings, uh, regular updates. That too, but you can also download um, those survey reports without being on our mailing list. They're accessible. You will need to give us your email address, so they are a little bit behind a firewall, but, but they are readily available and all for free. That is wonderful and really important information. And if you download it and given you know one's email, you will automatically be notified when the new one comes out. Is that you will be? You will be. You'll be invited to participate, and hopefully you will. By doing so, you're helping to build a repository of data that the sector desperately needs. Wonderful. Okay, so we are going to move into listener questions. Believe it or not, that's. We just have a little, uh, little bit more time all together here. And this is always a fun part of the uh, conversation. So here's a question from Christina in Portland. 
Over the past couple of years, I've been a finalist in several searches, but I haven't been able to get to the finish line. What am I doing wrong? And I'm gonna start with you, Michelle. What kind of advice would you give Christina in Portland? Well, first, you're not necessarily doing things wrong. Clearly, well, clearly you have a strong background, good resume and some good interview skills to be able to get to that finalist stage repeatedly. Um, be encouraged there. So I have a few things and if you want to go back and forth because there, I have, it brings a few things to mind. I'll try to be brief. Ask for constructive feedback after your interviews. If you get a response that no, so sorry we're advancing with, with other candidates, ask them for how you could how you could do better the next time not when you get that first call but set up a separate time so they know you're serious about getting feedback and even if they are even if the recruiter or someone is wanting to be nice if you can get even one or two pieces of actionable constructive feedback that will help you for the next time next use examples make sure you're using examples from your experience when you answer questions I like to recommend kind of a spin on a, an old model. It's a kind of a spin, but uh, what, now what, and so what? That's not always the way it's done, but what's the situation? What did you do? And why is that significant? What does that show about your skill? What lessons or learnings did you walk around with? And last, let me, let me just say, don't set your sights lower um, because of these so-called rejections. Actually set your sights higher. Think about who's your dream organization. Uh, organizations want candidates who want them, whose passions and values and programmatic expertise align with theirs. So don't set your sights lower, set your sights higher and go for those dream organizations. That's really great advice. And uh, I just wanna echo before I turn to you, Lisa, for some of your ideas, the example piece, because that is what I find, I hear most often from a search committee is, well, they were talking in generalities. I didn't really understand what their role was in this particular project or I, I they just didn't have any specific examples and so we actually you know we we do prep with our candidates as they move into a particular stage to make sure they are clear about you know what's happening in this next round and we're giving them feedback from the previous rounds as well so that's something that we do as we're in the process um we take what we're hearing from the search committee and as we're we're talking to the uh, candidate, we're giving them feedback. Again, trying to diffuse some of that, I gotcha. You know, you didn't know, like we, we've got to, you know, we're moving away from that hopefully. And that that is not the kind of dynamic that we want with the, the candidate. And we want the candidate to feel like they're being well taken care of. Uh, and we want the client partner to feel similarly. So Lisa, what are some of your strategies for this, uh, for Christina who just hasn't landed yet? Would agree with Michelle. Continue to press. Be focused on the types of organizations you align your time and talent to, and and be really uh, clear on the types of organizations where you think you can shine, because that will come through in the interview process. I would also say ask questions more. One of the reasons I eliminate candidates is because they fail to ask questions, and meaningful probing questions, ones that will make the board say, hmm right? That will say, this is a thinker. This is someone who um, is, is, it has gone beyond the mission statement and the, and the list of board members to really understand uh, what the organization is facing. One of the best questions a candidate can ask to show that they're really dialed into what the organization does 
is to ask about the critical challenge facing the organization now and six months from now. What will be the biggest challenge that I will face if I'm selected as ED? What do you hope as an organization to accomplish? And what's the thing standing in the way, right? So, so ask the question in a way that really conveys you're a thinker. That I think can help uh, position you, Christina, in a different light. I like that uh, advice. And I think anytime you can show that you've done some research, right? To your point, you've thought about the organization other than what you could read in the profile, uh, the opportunity profile, which by the way, um, something that has been really abundantly clear to me, and I'm, I'm curious if you all have this experience, is that men will look at a profile in about five seconds and say, okay, I'm going to apply. Women will look at each point. Well, I'm not sure I have that. Yeah, like, yeah, right? yeah. And so that, because we're not just, of course, doing you know any sort of passive uh, executive searches, we're going to people that we think can do well in these roles. And I find that I have to do a little bit more with women I certainly have to talk to them as they're, you know, starting to think about their package, because again, in most cases, women have not had the experience or been supported in having open conversations about the world of work and what they need their world to look like. They don't understand, for instance, that um, there, there are non-salary benefits, like an extra week of vacation that you can put on the table if the salary isn't exactly, for instance, where you would like. And those are just things that um, I find women most often don't even know as an option. Um, and so I, I, really, I, I really appreciate this idea of, yes, do your research. And when that shows, it matters. Michelle, yes, was there something else you wanted to add? Well, both of you are saying do your research and show that you've done it through your questions. Also, sometimes when, if someone unasked comes forward at a finalist, pre, finalist interview with a 30, 60, 90 day plan, that's something that demonstrates not only initiative, but in order to successfully put together a 90-day plan, you have to know the organization, you have to know its culture, and you are demonstrating you have a strong understanding of what the hiring, what the board's expectations are. Yeah, no, I think that's great, Michelle. And I, I would say going back to your point, Mary, about um, you know uh, coming to the table ready and, and just asking the right questions, as women, we're socialized not to negotiate. My experience is the older we are, the less apt we're to do it. Good news is our younger women are asking different questions than older women are. And so um, the expectation that uh, you would come to the table and just kind of take what's offered is, 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 is not being lost on, on, on our younger uh, up and coming women. And, and I'm, I'm glad to see that. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And that's one of the major positives of working with folks across all these different age ranges and, and really getting the client partner to understand that there's enormous value to and looking at folks across all the different age ranges, because sometimes, as you know, you know, ageism can <laughs> exist in the reverse. And so um, making sure that the client partner is open and understands that it's going to be different and different is not bad. Uh, that's just something that we, we try to emphasize. Okay, so let's move on to our second listener question here. I'm a VP of human resources at a nonprofit in Southern Texas, and my CEO keeps pushing me to get a mentor or coach, but I don't know where to start. Hmm, any ideas? And this is from uh, Vitor in El Paso. So I'm going to just 
start with you, Lisa, in terms of where someone should look, um, you know, for a mentor uh, or a coach, and also understanding that those are two different kinds of roles. I think that's really important. Um, they are. What would what would your suggestions be? My first advice was don't go to another HR person. One of the main reasons that executives refer HR people to a mentor or a coach is because their sense is they don't have strong enough strategic experience or insights. I would say the best person that you can get coaching or mentoring from is someone in the finance space or someone in the marketing space. Those two leaders can really help you position yourself differently as a leader within your organization. Finance, because they will get, help you look at the financials of your organization in a way that conveys, I understand business. Even though you're a nonprofit, you need to understand business. You need to understand the PL and the implications of talent on that PL. The marketing person, because they help you tell better stories, not only about yourself, but about your organization and the programs that you've created from a talent perspective. Those to me make the best mentors for HR people. So that would be my advice to that caller. Michelle, what would you offer? I agree that it's important first to understand the difference between a mentor and a coach. To understand the difference between a mentor, a coach, a consultant, or a friend. Those are all different roles. Uh, a mentor is someone who can share their experience and offer suggestions, questions, sometimes opinions and advice from their own experience. Uh, so in that case, I love Lisa's idea. Um, it, someone from the finance world or marketing, I, everything that Lisa said, I, I wrote those ideas down. It's great. Um, someone that uh, you can trust and even almost revere. A coach, on the other hand, is someone who can help you identify, uh, understand what your options are, and even help you think of your additional options and help you understand what course of action is right for you. That's very, very different than someone who is giving their advice um, or even someone who's just cheerleading. So I would say, look for people who are trained as coaches. Coaching is a skill. That's what I'm saying in all this. Coaching is a skill. Make sure they have some credentials behind them and um, that they are giving you sound coaching, not their opinion. Very nice. Um, well, great advice for our listeners. And um, as we uh, get ready to close, I want to just um, get some sense of what you are looking forward to. Uh, we are coming up, believe it or not, on the end of the first quarter. I, I really cannot believe that uh, March is over in a couple of weeks. And what are you looking forward to in, your, in each of your companies? What are you excited about? What do you think is coming down the pike? Anything like that you'd like to offer. And then we're gonna just make sure we give everyone your information again. So Lisa, do you like to start? I'd be happy to. I've waited 20 years to see organizations pay attention to culture. So this is like a high holy moment for me that organizations are finally reckoning with the ki kinds of environments they've created. I'm excited about the work that we're doing in the culture assessment space and helping organizations go beyond just recruiting and retention to understanding how important culture is to their ability to be impactful in the communities that they serve. So now the ears are open, the board's hearts are open, 
Um, and I'm excited about that, that time and, and the potential that it brings, not only for organizations, but for employees who've dedicated their time and talent to these organizations and will hopefully benefit from a doubling down on a focus on, on culture. And where would we go for more information about the upcoming um, studies that you're, you'll be working on and be uh, releasing? Sure, anyone can visit our website at www.nonprofithr.com. Um, Michelle, where can one go to find out more about what's happening at Kittleman, what your uh, you know, current searches are, and any information that one should know about working with Kittleman? Thank you, Mary, for asking. Our website is www.kittlemansearch.com. That's K-I-T-T-L-E. Mansearch.com. And yes, our current searches are listed on there. Look under um, current news and you will find our, our current searches and you can sign up to subscribe and receive notice of the searches that we are actively working on. Wonderful. We'll have all that information, of course, uh, when we release the podcast that will be um, also um, linked to, to this segment. Michelle, what, what are you looking forward to at Kittleman? few things. First, I'm looking forward to working with some new colleagues that I've been able to bring on. Um, Sunny Fisher, who's someone used to head up the Driehaus Foundation, she has joined us. Um, Sujata, Kay Sujata, who used to um, head up the Chicago Foundation for Women, she has joined us. So I'm very excited to work with them. And we've opened a couple of new offices. Second, I'm really looking forward to helping organizations navigate um, along their equity journey. People think that DE&I is just like a thing. It's a journey. And we are um, helping boards in particular um, understand where they are along that journey and helping um, walk with them on that journey and helping identify resources as they go through leadership transitions. And third, I am looking forward to continuing to invest our lives in making the, the, a, a positive difference in some of the best ways that we know how. I, I think that all of us on this podcast are investing our lives, trying to make a difference. I see boards trying to do the same and certainly the, and also the executives that we're placing. And, um, you know, we, we have faced our mortality. Life is short and I, I really, it sounds a little sappy, but I am looking forward to making the best use of our time and making um, as positive a difference as we can make together. I appreciate that um, because I too, particularly around the racial equity work, um, I'm, I am hopeful. I always say that if I didn't believe that people had the ability to change, I wouldn't be able to do this work, any of it. And so I do believe that people can change. I do think there have been a lot of hard lessons learned uh, throughout the pandemic. And uh, I'm looking forward to what uh, the rest of the year uh, will bring as well. And so that brings us, hard as it is to believe, we are, we are going to wrap for today uh, this has been another episode of Gathering Ground, and we're so excited that we've had Michelle Sattler and Lisa Brown-Alexander with us talking about not just the great resignation, but the great retention, right? How do we help our client partners uh, really build healthy, equitable organizations that really lift up culture and uh, making sure that our clients and their staff really understand what it means to belong to an organization, to be welcomed into an organization. So thank you both for being here today. And uh, I'm Mary Morton. This has been another episode of Gathering Ground. Until next time. <laughs>